This is a Podcast 225 production. The issues. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? The people. Carl Dabity. We've got Michael Shingleton. Taylor Moore. Jay Darden. Congressman Garrett Gray. Richard Condon. He is Ryan Clark. Sharon Weston Broom. The podcast. And we're going to talk about that. This is The Clay Young Show. Back at it again with another episode of The Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com. And on the Apple Podcast app, episode 197 is in your ears right now, and we are glad to be here. Special guest in studio with us today, new U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Louisiana, Brandon Freeman, will be my guest. We're going to talk about how he got from where he was as a youngster growing up in West Baton Rouge to the U.S. attorney for the Middle District. I think you'll find his story very, very interesting and inspiring. He's, he's a straight shooter, very involved in the community. And for many people who don't really know what the heck a U.S. attorney does, you'll get to find out today. That's good. Also on this edition of the show, we can't come in here and talk with you about me telling you what I think about the whole debacle with Jesse Smollett. I'm not even going to talk about that until after we get to Brandon Freeman. So we will do that in the closing segment. It's just very, very confusing. Not, well, you know what? It's not that confusing. It really isn't. Now that I think about it just in this moment. But anyway, I'm going to save that for the end of today's episode. Also, don't forget, if you hadn't marked it down yet, Sunday, May 19th is the sixth annual Smoke Em If You Got Em fundraiser benefiting the Chris Kyle Frog Foundation and Special Ops Survivors, two great organizations, one great cause, and you get to be there. Tickets are $100. Our title sponsor again this year is Mockler Beverage in association with Pest Stop, your do-it-yourself pest control solution, Open Eyes Safety Training and Consulting. Guarantee Media is in there again this year. Gordy and his team helping us out. Insurance Procurement Services, they are a sponsor. Don Juan Cigar Company, they're in there. Geico Insurance as well, they're in there. And my buddy Scott Overby at Doze Eat Place is putting something together. They're going to be in there. And of course, our host location and additional sponsor, Ben 77 Bistro in Perkins Row in Baton Rouge. Mark it down. Sunday, May 19th, 4 p.m., Ben 77. Tickets are $100. All of the money go to these two foundations. I forgot uh, the Just Cause Flag Foundation, Bobby D'Angelo, who does great, great work. We've got more information coming. You'll be able to get information about the event at smokembr.com. Smokembr.com. That site is under construction as we speak. So, what does Brandon Freeman think about the atmosphere over law enforcement right now. What does it take for someone to become U.S. attorney? What are the rigors of that job? How do you deal with this current climate, this anti-police climate that exists in sections of our society? How do all of these things come together and you still do a job doing the people's business? Well, those questions and more will get answered next. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. Have you noticed that your pets are being bitten more or if you're out working in the lawn or in your garden, you're being bitten more and you realize, gosh, it's fleas. You want to do something about that. Here's John Conroy, the founder and owner of Pest Stop, your do-it-yourself pest control solution. So what about that? Well, there's two ways to approach it, Clay. You can either use a long-lasting granule. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you catch it early enough in the infestation, you can generally knock it out. The, one, the granule we carry also right. targets the pre-adult stage. Yeah. If you don't do that, you will never eliminate the problem. Wow. 
and you want to use a granule that has sand as the carrier, not corn cob or not mm. clay, mm-hmm. so that when it rains, it's not really effective. Right. So, and, and I'm imagining this is not difficult to apply. No, you just put it into a fertilizer spreader and away you go. Lots of folks are enjoying the weather here in Baton Rouge when it's nice. So if I'm in the Capital City area, how can I get it? Well, come by and see us. Our Baton Rouge store is located at 806 O'Neill Lane. That's about a block south of Old Hammond Highway. Or if you have questions, just give us a call at 273-4788. Okay, and if I'm in the New Orleans area, where can I get it? In Metairie, we're located at 3512 Severn Avenue next to the Pepper Mill. On the North Shore, we're at 1417 North Highway 190 in the same shopping center as Sherwin-Williams and Villaries Floors. And on the West Bank, we're on the Palco just past the Harvey Bridge. This is The Clay Young Show. with Brandon Freeman, U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Louisiana. He is a retired Marine, a graduate of Southeastern University. And, you know, Brandon, we met a little more than a year ago at one of the call-ins for the truce program. That's right. And we've we've had a chance to talk a lot since then, and we'll kind of work our way towards today. Sure. But what I'd like to begin with is how we got here. So where are you from originally? Yeah, first off, Clay, thanks for having me. Um, So interesting journey. So I'm originally from the area. I grew up in West Baton Rouge uh, in large part. Uh, My mother's side of the family is from there. My father is actually uh, an an immigrant to the United States. He moved to the United States uh, when he was a child. He was, I think, 11 or 12 years old, uh, immigrated from Germany. Wow. Uh, He stayed here in the States, got a citizenship, and uh, and he's, he's been here ever since. Um, so I grew up at, in large part in West Baton Rouge and then uh, went to high school here in Baton Rouge at mm-hmm. Catholic High. Yeah. Uh, and then, as you said earlier, went on, to, went on to college at Southeastern and, and then here we are. And it's interesting. Uh, what part of West Baton Rouge? Uh, Port Allen. Port Allen. Yeah. Okay. Right across the Mississippi Ga- River. It's the gateway to the world. Well, you know, the thing about it, and as I joke the, with as a couple the sign says. Well, I joke with a couple of buddies who live on the West side yeah. is if it wasn't for the Washington exit, there would be more Baton Rougeans living in Port Allen Probably than right. in East Baton Rouge. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's spread out, but man, fighting the Washington exit all the time is, is yeah. a thing. And, the, and you were appointed by President Trump after a period of time, because that's the way these things go, that's right. as U.S. Attorney after Walt Green. Yes. Um, at Southeastern, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. You're, you're, you're at Southeastern, you end up in the Marine Corps. Um, what... what motivated you to become a member of the armed forces so it's it's pretty simple to turn that mic in your direction sure. just a little it's, bit it's there. it's pretty simple when i was uh when i was a kid in in uh in grade school uh and even you know going back as far as i can remember i've always had a healthy respect for our service members mm-hmm. uh and i thought it was uh it was just impressive even at a young age that a young young person would have, uh, you know, maybe that certain level of commitment to yeah. his or her country that yeah. they would want to give some time, and I just thought it was important to do. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, it started out with, you know, as 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 many things happen with youngsters in, you know, in, in grade school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, there were some really, I watched some really cool movies. Right. And uh, and 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 had a healthy respect for the Marine Corps and. You know, it, I didn't think about it a ton when I was in high school, mm-hmm. but uh, towards the end of my time in high school, I was a senior. In fact, I just remember thinking, you know, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to do something for my country. Yeah. Uh, a buddy of mine at the time, uh, a, a person with whom I'm still close friends, came to me and said, "Hey, I think I'm going to join the Marines." <laughs> and so uh, we had a conversation, as most high schoolers do. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of um, a lot of good natured, uh, you know, good natured back and forth about uh, about who's going to join and who's yeah. going to be better than the other guy. Uh, I went on that Saturday uh, and joined the Marine Corps, and uh, and he 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 didn't. What your parents <laughs> think of that? Did they know you were going to do that? They did. You know, I had a long talk. Uh, I had a long talk with uh, my my grandparents actually, and my mother. I was adopted by my grandparents mm-hmm. when I was a child, so yeah. they they were instrumental in uh, in raising me. Yeah. So I had a nice long conversation with them and with my mother. Uh, and in fact, they, I, I, I had to have that conversation because I was 17 years old at the yeah, time, and, yeah. and I'm assuming the rules are still the same. Uh, you have to you have to have your parental uh, parental uh, approval yeah. if you're under 18. So yeah. we did we did that. Yeah. And then there was it a combination because it was a different world back then. Yeah. It, it isn't like it is now. Yeah. Was there a combination of of pride and fear? I mean, what what, what were the emotions that you kind of gleaned from them when you told them you wanted to do this? Well, well, the context. Well, for them, it was 
it was unconditional support and yeah. pride. Yeah. Uh, and and for and to put it in context, this was this would have been in, in 1991, mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of 91. Mm-hmm. So it was after it was after uh, Operation Desert Storm yep. wrapped up. Yep. And when that you know when I saw that play out as most people did yep. on television, yep. I wanted to be a part of of what makes uh, what I believe. Uh, makes up the uh, makes up the fabric of America, which is our, our our armed forces. That was really the first time we saw it in real time. I mean, there were other skirmishes in other places that we got after the fact. We 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 saw f- in, reporters embedded, and we sure. got reports on the network. You know, five thirty news and leaking into the six and ten o'clock news. But at that time, it was the beginnings of cable news as we have come to know it, and CNN had people embedded and, and you were beginning, this is, this is pre-internet if people could believe that, but sure. you know, at least the internet as we know it, people were seeing it and you're right, Desert Storm, what, what we learned about General Schwarzkopf and you know, the, the people who came out of that period. And you know, it, it's interesting. So growing up in West Baton Rouge, how did that shape your view of society, of America, in your journey to becoming a member of the military, it's a first of all, it's a great community. It's a small it community. It is. It's a close knit community, right. uh, and it's it's a it's you know it's it's just right across the river from Baton Rouge. But but it's it's a it's a in a lot of ways it's there's a huge difference in the communities. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, and that's to take nothing away from from the, the many communities here. I mean, I've I've seen it in my time, you know, here and growing up in the area, especially mm-hmm. having uh, as a prosecutor, which I'm sure we'll touch on later. Yep had an opportunity to meet so many people from so many different areas, yep. not only of this parish, but now uh, as the U.S. attorney in, in all the parishes mm-hmm. uh, surrounding Baton Rouge and in the state, really. But it's just a close-knit community. It's a right. small town. And there's that there's just that sense of pride that you get when yeah. you know your neighbor, uh, you know your neighbor's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's a, that's that's a very important. I try to teach those values to my kids. These I get over to Bajeron's about six times a year to get some crackling. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> and that's not enough. Right? <laughs> hey, man, yeah. listen, I was over yeah. there one time. I, I went over to get some, and, the, and they remembered me because at this time it was a little more than six. I had to dial it back, and, and the girl waiting on me said, you know, there's a guy who stops through here, a trucker. And she said... He came through one time to get some. He was hungry. And the next time he came through, he told her he was eating them so fast, he got lightheaded at the top of the bridge and almost had to pull over. I'm not surprised. <laughs> no, they do, so, they do great work. If you've never yeah. been over there, and this, this is an unsolicited promotion endorsement of Bajorans, but do yourself a favor, go over there. So in the, in, in the, in the Marine Corps, in your time there, what did you do? Yeah, so it was, uh, it was pretty simple. I, it, it, when I was in high school, as I said, I enlisted for a five-year active duty mm-hmm. intelligence uh, contract. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, I had a, I had a, a problem with my knee. I required surgery. Yeah. So I started college. Mm-hmm. The, the plan was to forego college mm-hmm. and join the Marine Corps and get my education right. while I was in the Marine Corps. Right. Uh, so the, the knee the knee operation happened, and then uh, I started school. Yeah. So I got a couple of semesters under my belt and decided that was – actually, I got nearly two years of credit yeah. under my belt. And decided, you know what? That's that's a lot of work that I put in. So I joined the Marine Corps Reserve at okay. that time, uh, thinking that once I got my degree, if I decided to go full time again, it would be uh, I would probably do it as an officer. Yeah. Uh, as it happened, I enlisted uh, as a uh, as a as a heavy machine gunner. I was yeah. I was in the infantry. Sure. In the Marine Corps, which is for us, it's the backbone yep. of, of the Marine Corps. Uh, so I was a heavy machine gunner uh, in the infantry, and uh, and I did that for for about seven years. And you you left with the rank of sergeant. I did, yeah. And yeah. so yeah, coming out of the Marine Corps, it, it, you decided to obviously go get a law degree. Mm-hmm. And what what motivated that? Yeah. So when I was so when I was in the Marine Corps, I was uh, I, yes, I, I, as I said, I had started college before I enlisted, mm-hmm. uh, and I finished up. And so those those two things, those two phases of my life, sort of rank concurrently yeah. with time in the Marine Corps and, and finishing school. And I was approached by a friend of mine who had done an internship at the DA's office here in the 19th Judicial District mm-hmm. uh, in Hiller's office today, yeah. but what, mm-hmm. what at the time was Doug, Doug Morrow's Morrow. office. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, you know, he was, uh, I, I was a criminal justice major, uh, as was my classmate, uh, who said, hey, look, you know, there's a really interesting internship to be had at the DA's office. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to a couple of people. Uh, and, and I thought, really, you know, this is a really interesting way to spend a day and uh you know it was no two days were ever the same right and that was just as a as a as a college student who who did an internship the the point there is 
is that uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, about a month after I graduated, a permanent opening uh, was available as a criminal investigator. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Morrow uh, and his senior staff uh, was, was gracious enough to take a chance on me and bring me on board. And uh, it was then that, that I was exposed to the criminal justice system, yeah. uh, on obviously on the side of the prosecutors, and that really intrigued me. And it was, it was you know, I've told the story before, it was the day I watched the first jury trial I'd ever seen. Uh, it was the day that I saw that trial that I knew I wanted to go to law school and become a, a, a prosecutor. Why? Yeah. I just thought it was an amazing part of the process that I'd never seen before. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't particularly interested in, at the time in the uh, in the in the you know, police and law mm -hmm. enforcement dramas that you see on TV. Yeah. Um, uh, that are so pervasive now. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that's all stuff over the cells. Right. Yeah. So um, I saw it firsthand and it was just a really interesting part of the process because that's truly what it is. It's a process. I, 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 you know, Doug Morrow mentioned this to me many years ago and he still says it. It's 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 not necessarily a system of justice as much as it is a process. Mm -hmm. And that was a part of the process that I thought it'd be really interesting to learn more about and to, and to be a part of. And quite frankly, uh, you know, the, when I when I watched that 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 trial play out, I just thought I'd like to be up there standing in front of that jury <laughs> doing that job. I was going to ask you, what were some of the, the characteristics or things that stood out? That's one, having the opportunity to to present before a jury sure. of, of the person's peers. Were there any other aspects of that that you looked at and said, man, I really want to do this. This is what I meant to do with my life. Yeah, I like interacting with people. Yeah. And I thought that was a great way to be a part of the process and to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, it was it's, it's interesting because you don't there isn't I didn't know it at the time, but there isn't a ton of interaction with yeah. the jury. Yeah, it's a presentation. Sure. Uh, but but, you know, on the front end, you do get to interact with the jury. You get right. to ask questions of them. You get to you get in in very short in a short amount of time you get in you get inside the mind of a prospective juror and, mm -hmm. you, and you do your best to learn what makes that person tick yeah you know I, one of my favorite books is by david donald and mm -hmm. he writes about lincoln mm -hmm. and you know lincoln learned the law as almost a, a nuisance because you had to know what the law was but what he was most in love with was orating and mm -hmm. being able to stand in front of a jury or, or a courtroom full of people and and sell, you right. know, you know, and I mean that in, in all positive sense of sure. he, he loved that and he was he was great. Um, and so that part of it, I think, is dramatized on television so much. But I think there is a whole lot more that goes into like, what's your perspective on building an argument without giving away too many trade secrets, but creating the argument that you think creates a compelling and convincing narrative for a jury for me when when i was you know so my role now is a little different i'm mm -hmm. not i'm not in the courtroom sure. like i was before i'm as much as an, an administrator now as ever yeah. before yeah. But my argument started the moment i read the file mm -hmm. for the first time like i envisioned myself assuming that i had the, the facts and the evidence to prove the case yeah i envisioned myself arguing that case at the end of a trial before mm -hmm. a jury and I thought, what? How can how can I package this this file, yeah. uh, this information, all this evidence into an hour or less okay. to sell to a group of people I've never met, right? And and make them believe so strongly in the facts and the evidence that I've presented. Uh, and so it started at the very beginning for me. Yeah. And now, obviously, the the thought process that goes into uh, the charging analysis is paramount because without without the, the facts and the law. And that's really what it's about. Right. Without the facts and the law, you never get to an argument. That's right. But it's always it's always in the back of my mind. Have you ever been presenting when you were doing that, presenting an argument and you had a strategy going into it? And then you look over and see the jury either glazing over or it's like, God, I don't have them. They're, they're not with me. And you pivoted because you you were able to read their body. Because I'm sure that has to be a part of this reading the listener. Absolutely. And I'll tell you an interesting at least I think it's an interesting story. One of the things that I think helped me in interacting with the jury, believe it or not, is the farthest thing from a jury trial. And it was one of the experiences I had as a college student. And I, you know, I worked several different jobs when yeah. I was a college student, like yeah. most. Uh, I was a waiter. Yeah. And, hmm. and, and it didn't occur to me until I was in front of a, you know, my first or second jury or so that this is not so unlike waiting, waiting on tables. Right. And it's because my approach when I, was a, when I was a college kid and a waiter is 
I've got to convince this group of three people who are here to eat a meal right. to pay me money. Right. So I got to get to know these three people. And not just pay you money, but do it well. Right. Yeah. So I got to figure out what these folks want and yep. what they don't want. There's yep. two types of customers. Yep. There's the kind who likes the waiter to hang out and visit, and there's yep. the kind who just wants you to serve them and get out of their That's face. right. So I thought that was a, a sort of a neat analogy for picking a jury, and I still share that with, with new lawyers. Right. You have to learn as much as you can about a total stranger in short order, and you have to figure out what it is that makes that person believe yeah. your story. What about the people on the inside of the system? I can imagine, because you never worked as, as a defense attorney. No. You were, almost all, you were always a prosecutor or working near the system of prosecution. That's right. So you get to meet people who come into that system for various reasons. And I talk about that, the people who are at the center of the fight between the state and their representation. Sure. So it's a it's it's an interesting dynamic. Some of the best relationships uh, are are between uh, the prosecutor and their counterparts. Frankly, mm -hmm. you get to know those folks quite well, especially especially in a setting like the district attorney's office, yeah. where you've got a group of prosecutors who are who are assigned to a courtroom, uh, and uh, their counterparts from the public defender's office are assigned to the same courtroom. So you work with these folks every day. Yeah. Uh, and you get to know them, you yeah. get to know their families. Yeah. Uh, but that does not stop the adversarial nature of the process, mm -hmm. uh, which and it's another it's another nugget I try to pass along to new new prosecutors or new litigators. Frankly, is that look, it's adversarial, but it doesn't have to be disrespectful. Right. You know, we can treat each other respectfully. Yeah. We're all professionals, but we don't necessarily have to agree on a point. That other stuff is television. It, absolutely. Yeah. H have you ever been in? Now look, it can it can get testy from time to time, but <laughs> okay, well, okay. Since so you went there, the, what's, goal, what, the goal is not to take it personally. What what's the what is the, either either the angriest or the most off put you have been by something someone on the other side saying said to you without giving away the gender or the nature of what it was? Sure, it's like uh, where you got pissed off. You thinking, like, did he just say that to like, me? Or it's like playing pickup basketball. And the guy who def the guy who defends you has never played before, and he's kind of uh, wild. Yeah, he's kind of he's yep. kind of wild defender, and you're yep. not sure which way he's going to go. Right, he's never been there before, and right. he's not really well prepared to play the game. Right, people who aren't really well prepared to play the game, and they've never been there before, and they're all over the place. Undisciplined. That can be frustrating. Yeah, but but also again, look, you you try to temper that with some patience. Uh, with some understanding, that, hey, you know, maybe he's he's never been here before, right. and, and maybe I should just I should be the professional here, and so you try to do it that way. You know, this is kind of an odd question, but it, you know, it, what about any instances where you knew there was a circumstance where a person was guilty based upon the evidence of some crime in a case? However. There were circumstances where you had some sympathy for them, even though you knew by the law, the just thing is you need to be found guilty of this. But the human in you just kind of didn't feel great about it. But you had to do your job. And, and you just you just encapsulated it in the last sentence. You have to do your job. Right there. Look, there are so many times where if you know, if you're if you're paying attention as a prosecutor, mm -hmm. you're going to run across good people who make terrible mistakes. Right. Uh, not every criminal defendant who walks through the system or goes through the process is public enemy number one. Mm -hmm. I mean, good people make mistakes. Right. That happens all the time. Sure, sure. And, and, and the good thing there is that you've, you know, as a prosecutor, we, you know, we're not, we're, we're not, you know, we're not tin man. We have hearts from right. time to time. Right. And you can use your discretion to make prosecutorial decisions. What is that based? discretion? Uh, it's well. It depends on it depends on the management structure of the office in which you operate, okay. the rules uh, in in the office, and the policies. Okay. Um, you know, so as in my experience uh, working for Mr. Morrow and for for Hiller, yeah, uh, we, his prosecutors have great discretion yep. in terms of how they uh, how they manage their caseload, yeah. and how they dispose of their cases. Uh, and that's that's uh, that's the I think the right way to do it. It's empowering for the for the attorneys who handle those cases. Uh, give them. Uh, it gives them the sense that you, as their boss, as mm -hmm. their manager, uh, and as the leader of, yeah. of that office, trust them. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I try to carry uh, carry forward in our office now. I just want the folks uh, to work, who work in our office, the prosecutors, uh, to know that they've got uh, they've got my support and my trust, mm -hmm. and that they and they can make decisions for themselves. Uh, and and we're fortunate; we've got a great group. And I'm just trying to pass along some of the you know. 
some of the some of the best practices that I've seen in my career. So you ultimately went from the district attorney's office to the U.S. attorney's office. What was that transition like? What precipitated? Yeah, so th- that was back in 2012. Mm-hmm. I'd been a prosecutor for about nine years at that point. Um, and I'd st- I'd, I was prior to that nine years, as I said earlier, for a couple of years, a year and a half, two years or so, I was a, an investigator with the DA's office. So all told, it was 12, 13 years yeah. of experience there uh, in some capacity. And it was, it was um, you know, there was an opening at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I'd heard about it. Uh, I, was, I was interested, and, and I went ahead and applied because, yeah. you know, as a, as a prosecutor, uh, that's a, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the same, it, you know, it's the same job. In, in the sense that, yeah. yes, you're prosecutors, but it's, it's different. You know, it's different law. Was it the challenge or did you just get tired of Hiller? It was, a, yeah, <laughs> no, so it was, it was an, it was a unique challenge. It really was. I mean, it was, a, it was a system that I'd never, I'd never, yeah. I'd never played ball in that, in that league sure. before. Sure. And so uh, it was a system that I was unfamiliar with. I thought it was a great opportunity to go out and perhaps expand upon my experience as yeah. a prosecutor, learn a new system of law, yeah. learn, learn how the federal system works. Um, and you know, and I had funny how life works. I had plans to be there for a long time. It turns out I was only there for, you know, a year, maybe 13, 14 months. Well, and then you ended up U S attorney and, and so that's interesting. You're there for such a brief amount of time. What separated you from your contemporaries in the office to be the person who ends up becoming U S attorney? Well, look, to be fair, to be fair to everybody, everybody in the office, um, I don't know that there was anything that necessarily separated me, and I didn't. I didn't go from from a line prosecutor in that office to the position I have today. Yeah. There was some sure. there was some intervening time there. So after uh, 2013, um, uh, Hiller actually called me back into service at his office. Mm-hmm. He, there was a position in management, uh, and I thought, you know, in spite of the fact that I wanted to be there at the U.S. Attorney's Office for a long time, I thought the opportunity to get into the leadership structure. Yeah. Uh, would be beneficial to, right. to, to me and to my career, hopefully. So I took that uh, opportunity and I worked back. I was back at Hiller's office for about two years uh, when the uh, at the time newly elected attorney general, uh, Jeff Landry, called and, and asked if I'd be interested in coming on board as his director of the yeah. criminal division. Yeah, uh, that was really that was really uh, an honor and it was flattering. Sure. I didn't know uh, Attorney General Landry. Um, I didn't really know anybody on his on his senior uh, leadership team. Uh, and it was really, uh, it was really for me a validation of all the hard work that I'd put in. Yeah. Uh, that they that would would reach out to a person that they really didn't know, uh, and 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 trust that that person would would do a good job. So, once we met and uh, and you know went through the interview process, uh, I thought it was a really good opportunity for me to to sort of expand on yeah. not just the experience that I had in the courtroom. Uh, and, and with the case work, but but that leadership experience that I that, that I started with, uh, you know, in the DA's office, and then years prior in the Marine Corps too. So so take me to the period leading up to the selection of who was going to follow Walt Green as sure. U.S. Attorney. Yeah. So so after the presidential election, uh, as is customary, sure. at some point, you know, uh, the uh, U.S. attorneys nationwide tender are, their resignations. They, they're ordinarily they're ordinarily kept on uh, for a certain period at mm-hmm. the discretion of the new president, sure. of course. Uh, and then generally asked to resign. Um, and, you know, there are some who are retained. Uh, yeah. Some choose to reapply. Yeah. Um, many just, you know, go on, go on about their, their, their various paths. So uh, it was at that point, um, maybe I think that happened. I think, I think Walt and his colleagues uh, stepped down in March of 2017. So yeah. about two years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was a few months prior to that that the you know the rumors um, in the legal community started to, to started to bubble and some names started to surface. I, at that point, I had not I had not applied uh, for the job, uh, nor had I really expressed outwardly expressed um, a, a tremendous amount of interest in the job. But was there interest? There was, and I'll tell you, Clay. My uh, my, my take on it was, you know, I, I worked for Walt when yeah. I was a, at the U.S. Attorney's Office in twelve and thirteen. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for no Walt, question, uh, and the way he conducts himself yep. as a gentleman, uh, as a marine, all the time, and as a lawyer, yeah. as a leader. Yep. Uh, so, and and I had, I'll, I'll share. I don't think Walt would would mind if I shared this. He and I had a conversation uh, about the job, and he asked me if I was interested in the job. And my response was simply, "Look, if it's, as long as it's your job, I'm not interested." Right. Uh, and he said, "Look, that's not how this works. Uh, if you don't." put in right now, uh, then you're crazy. Uh, and, and, I, but I didn't, 
because I had yeah. that kind of respect for. But he's a high character guy, man. Oh, it's it, top notch. Yeah. So, uh, so at any rate, uh, that was sometime in in the late fall, at, right after the election. So fast forward a few months, the rumor mill generates some names. Uh, there was some media interest. I fielded a few calls, uh-huh. and then ultimately, it was uh, it was on. I believe it was April sixth or seventh. So a month or so after the U.S. attorneys uh, stepped down. Uh, I received a phone call uh, from a, uh, an acquaintance of mine who, unbeknownst to me at the time, sat on Senator Cassidy's uh, vetting committee. Ah. So Senator Cassidy put together a committee of, uh, of, of a diverse group of folks, 10, 10 people uh, in the legal field, in the business field, some were uh, former politicians, mm-hmm. uh, to assist him in the decision-making process and in the vetting of candidates. Okay. So I received a call from a person, as I said, unbeknownst to me, who was on that committee, and they asked me if, uh, you know, if I had any interest in the position. Uh, well, at that time, I realized, you know, I joked with my wife. I said, it sounds like I have one vote. So that's, <laughs> so that's more than I had before the phone call. <laughs> right, right. So I decided at that point it was time yeah. to, to, to put in. Um, and so it was a couple of days later I submitted the, the package and then that was when the process started. Uh, and, and, and as I said, it started with a, uh, a committee interview of 10, yeah. 10 folks that the Senator put together. Are you, uh, do you at any point have a conversation with either via phone or in person with the president? I mean, there's so many of these positions to fill. What is his involvement in this process? Yeah. So, so we, we have had meetings, uh, mm-hmm. we've met a couple of times, Sure. but in that part of the process, what's ordinarily the way it works is there's a group of White House uh, legal team, uh, mm-hmm. a legal team at the White House, mm-hmm. uh, who also work with the Department of Justice lawyers. Sure. Um, and so we're skipping ahead a bit, but once once the senator uh, in this particular case makes the recommendation to the president, okay. of course the senators, uh, th- their role in this is to vet the candidates and make recommendations. Right. Uh, once the once Senator Cassidy uh, and then when once Senator Kennedy uh, were were engaged and then made the recommendation to the president. Then it gets uh, the, the, the way I describe the process simply is that we get out of Louisiana and we get into Washington. Yeah. And and so once we got into Washington, it was um, it was uh, another phased approach. So yeah. the first phase was, you know, once we got through Senator uh, Cassidy's uh, interview, he sent my name up to the White House. Almost immediately, the White House reached out and indicated that my name had been submitted mm-hmm. uh, and that the next step, step of the process began. And it was essentially a series of interviews with uh, Department of Justice personnel and yeah. White House personnel. In, in the interviews, I, I would imagine that this the conversation is heavily about the law and your perspective on law. Uh, is it constitutional law? I mean, wh- what what kinds of, if I don't know that you can share that, but what kinds of questions pop up that you have to show your intellect or your level of experience. Sure. On. So believe it or not, they do their homework. Yeah. And they they do a pretty deep dive on your background uh, before the official background check begins. Okay. Uh, so they know who they're dealing with. They know what kind of they know what kind of legal background uh, you have and your and your experience mm-hmm. in the legal field. So they have a pretty good idea of where you are. They talk. They don't talk necessarily. Uh, at least at least once we get out of Louisiana and into the D.C. Uh, phases. It was mostly about issues, yeah. uh, not necessarily as much about casework or, yeah. or particular uh, jurisprudence, but okay. it was mostly about issues. But what I found also interesting uh, was that once we got to that level, it wasn't as much about what you have done. It's about what will you do? Mm-hmm. How will you run the office? Mm-hmm. How will you engage in the community? How will you uh, resolve certain issues? Yeah. Uh, temperament, of sure. course, they're, they're looking for, for a person who's got sort of an even keel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't as much about the deep dive constitutional or legal issues as yeah. much as it was uh, you know, policy related issues yep. and and, uh, and and prospective leadership. And I guess the avoidance of what would be perceived as activism one way or the other. Sure. Uh, you know, you you took over the job just after a pretty tumultuous time in the history of Baton Rouge. Obviously, the interim U.S. attorney, Corey Amundsen, oversaw uh, the back end of the Justice Department's investigation into the uh, shooting of Alton Sterling, and he held his press conference. And most people on both sides of this, regardless of where you stand, have a generally positive uh, response or or perspective on how he went about doing it. Mm -hmm. Having come into this job after that, I mean, what did you feel about it? Because that, that office had been in the spotlight largely because of all of that. Sure. So it was almost a year after his announcement yeah. when I came on board. Yeah. 
So I believe that announcement was made on May 3rd or 4th yeah. of 2017. And that was, that was the, effectively the same time I started the process of, of, the, uh, of, of, of the interview process of becoming the U.S. attorney. So I, I was on boarded on February, uh, uh, swore in on February 22nd of 18, so almost a year later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of time passed. Uh, and as you know, there was, you know, there were many, many, uh, many, many concerns, not only in the legal community, but in, in the community at large as a whole, in yeah. Baton Rouge. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was focused at the time, uh, on two very important phases of my life. One, which let's not forget at the time all this happened, I was the director of the criminal division right. at the attorney general's office. Right. Um, we were at the time, uh, awaiting the, the receipt of all of the information mm-hmm. Uh, from uh, from the federal investigators right. and from Hiller's office, right? Uh, because as you know, Hiller uh, had recused his office mm-hmm. f- from that matter. So I was focused on number one, uh, you know, shepherding our office through the process of working through the analysis once we received the information, but also simultaneously I was engaged in the process of interviewing and and, and interviewing for this this position. Yeah, yeah. So you know, my concern uh, for for the office was. Uh, how not only did it affect the community because we saw that play out, sure. but how did it affect the office? Yeah. Uh, operationally, uh, not just operationally, but in terms of morale. Uh, and, and, and I didn't know that uh, until I got there. Yeah. Um, but look, what'd you find? Well, I was just going to say, you know, first of all, I think, you know, Corey, uh, Corey didn't, you referenced Corey Amundsen. Mm-hmm. He and, and the staff there did a remarkable job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it sounds, I mean, it probably sounds pretty obvious coming from me, uh, but I will say, you know, I said it on the first day, I inherited a pretty good situation yeah. in, in that office. Yeah. We've got, I've been around the business of prosecuting and law enforcement since 1998, mm-hmm. uh, as, as, a, as I said, as an intern. And, and you, it, you'll be hard pressed to find a group of more professional uh, prosecutors with the kind of character and integrity that every citizen should expect out sure. of public servants. And we've got a great office. And that's, that's, um, and that, if you've got those, if you've got that as a basis or as a foundation for who you are, mm-hmm. then you can kind of get through just about anything. The specter of divisions as they stand in society now have such an impact on how the public perceives the legal system, uh, the criminal justice system as a whole. All of these, you know, qualifiers, race, religion, economic status, all these things are thrown out because so many in the media want the dumpster fire and they don't necessarily give a crap about, you know, the impact it has on anyone. And I just need to say it that way because I think that's just the way it is mm-hmm. for you. And and we've been involved in community things together. You have your job to do as U.S. attorney, but you also have a job to do as a citizen of this community. Sure. How do you balance those two things? Well, for me, it's pretty simple. In terms of the, the professional side of things, as a prosecutor, it's about two things. It's about the law and mm-hmm. the facts. Yep. And if we don't have those, then it doesn't matter race, creed, color, right. uh, affiliation, socioeconomic mm-hmm. status. Those things just don't matter if we don't have the law and the facts. Right. Um, <clears throat> so that, that it, that's pretty easy. Frankly, sure. If you're if you're guided by those principles, then I think it makes the job easier to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the on the on the personal side, uh, I mean, I think it's an op, you know it's our obligation to take care of our community. As yeah. I teach my children, it's our, it's our house. We need yeah. to take care of our house. When people say that the, the criminal justice system at every level is weighted against poor and or brown people, mm-hmm. your response to that is what? I personally have not seen that. I, I, I take, as I said earlier, I take every, uh, the approach to every case is simply, do we have the law and the facts on our side? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've prosecuted persons of every race and color that sure. you can imagine in sure. our communities, sure. uh, business people, yep. politicians, yep. Uh, you know, lay people. Yeah. Uh, and, and for me, it's, it's just about whether we can prove a case. You know, it's, it's, I, I, and that may not be the sexiest answer, but it's just, that's how we operate. And that's right. how, you know, I'm very fortunate in that we've got some, the, the people in our leadership structure in the office, uh, they, they bleed that. Yeah. If it's not about the law and if it's, if it's about the law and the facts and, and the evidence and nothing else. Same kind of question as it relates to law enforcement, as we saw over the last six years, it's, it's almost a soap opera like portrayal of what happens between members of the law enforcement communities and specifically people in poor communities, even more specific, uh, black men. 
And you know, I think that narr- that narrative sometimes muddies what what goes on. But again, you know, does that have any impact on how you go about doing your job sensibilities to the way the public perceives those things or or no? You know, I'll, an example, <clears throat> one of uh, when I was a young prosecutor, we had a, 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 a pretty contentious trial, yeah. a jury trial. Uh, and it was uh, on a case that was that was uh, f- fairly well followed in the sure. media and in the public. Sure. Um, and uh, my wife, my, at the time, my fairly new wife, came mm-hmm. to court and watched the proceedings. The, I think it was the closing argument. And afterwards, we were at home that evening. And she says, I don't know how you do this every day. Because half the people in the room are with you, and the other half are glaring at you. Yeah, right. They're not with you. No, right. And you just can't let that affect you. And I think, you know, I don't, I, I don't take it personally. Now I know that uh, I, I I know that families of of victims mm-hmm. and of defendants certainly take it personally, sure, and that's sure. that's perfectly within their province, and and they should. Yeah, they should be you know, more folks should be invested in their families and friends. Absolutely. Uh, so you can't you can't hold that can't hold that against them. I just understand that as just it's just part of doing business in this job. You know, there are folks that are that are not going to like some of the decisions we make as prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I'm if I'm guided by those principles that I shared with you earlier, then I then I feel pretty comfortable uh, about how I go about my business. Look, I had a, you know, this is a pretty simple way of saying it, but I, a, a, a a judge, a friend of mine who's a lot smarter than I am, said that uh, one of his mentors from many 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 years ago said it very simply: if you do the right thing for the right reason, then it all works itself out. That's truth. You know, we were talking about this earlier uh, on your way into here. And I, and I said to you, I don't think that the average person knows what the heck a U.S. attorney does unless there is some news story. And then you see U.S. attorney so-and-so is involved. Right. So on a day-to-day basis, what what do you do? Yeah, so that's a great question. So our, I'll explain generally what our office does. Yeah. Uh, so, it, it, you know, we're, we're not just a prosecutor's office. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, essentially three main components of our office. We've got uh, a civil division, yeah. uh, which represents the United States in civil claims or civil yeah. cases against the United States. Yeah. Uh, the, the easy example is if somebody slips and falls in the post office and the post office gets sued, our office will represent the government's interests in those cases. Okay. Uh, we also do some affirmative civil, uh, civil, enga- uh, civil actions uh, through our civil division. And then we've obviously got the criminal side, which is both in in scope and in notoriety the largest. Sure. Um, and so, and that is a is an office of prosecutors who prosecute uh, criminal charges. And then the third part is, as you could imagine, we have an administrative component that that helps the senior leadership mm-hmm. uh, shepherd the office through the processes that is uh, that is management. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's a civil division, a criminal division, an administrative division. So put simply, for, for folks who don't know a ton about what the U.S. Attorney's Office does, especially the criminal side, yeah. think, uh, think a district attorney's office, uh, but for the federal government, right? And so the, job, the role of the U.S. Attorney uh, in every district in the United States is that of the chief uh, federal law enforcement official in mm-hmm. the district. So I, uh, I and my counterparts in other districts are uh, we are the chief federal law enforcement officials in our district yes. representing the United States and the executive branch of the United States government. How many people are in your and under your uh, in your staff? In our office, yeah, yeah we've got about 60 right okay. now. Uh, and and we're um, we're we're classified generally as a small medium office mm-hmm. in, in in relation to our counterparts in other country in other uh, in other districts. So uh, we're a relatively small office. Yeah. Uh, our district is very small in terms yeah. of size. We've got nine parishes. Uh, there are some districts which, uh, and it's many of the western states, sure. uh, are comprised of the entire state. Uh, so we've got nine parishes. Uh, there are three federal districts in Louisiana, the eastern district uh, centered around New Orleans mm-hmm. and the surrounding parishes. Middle district, obviously, centered right. around Baton Rouge. And then the western district, which is essentially everything west of the Mississippi River, uh, excluding Point Capee, Iberville, and West Baton Rouge, which mm-hmm. belongs to the middle district. Right. You know, if if I didn't ask this question, I'd probably have people outside in my parking lot with pitchforks saying, why didn't you ask him that? You know, a big thing going on in the news right now is Will Wade. His name is out there, the LSU basketball coach for anybody who's making their residence under a rock. Sure. And 
you know, it's it's in the news. Coach Wade has been suspended because he showed up on a wiretap that was about someone else, and he made some comments, and it's just kind of out in the ether right now about what's going to happen with that. Sure. Obviously, as U.S. attorney, people want to know: Do you have a perspective on that? And your answer would be: Sure, I don't. I won't share any personal opinions I have on that. Frankly, um, it's not going to be the most instructive answer, but. Uh, we we have a policy at the Department of Justice, and it, and it's simply that we don't we don't comment on the existence of of any investigation, uh, uh, whether they exist or not. Right. Uh, so it's it's a it's sort of a it's sort of a long winded no comment. How long? How many times have you gotten that in the line at the grocery store? That question. Oh, more than you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know the because it, it, it's one of those things that it's just out there, and then the sports media loves it because it gives them dumpster fire, man. Sure. It gives them a chance to have more more rubberneckers. Are there any times where you have to really suppress the Louisiana Baton Rouge aspect of you because you're a human being? And I, well, let, let, that's obvious. Obviously, there are. But what's your mechanism to say it's not about how I feel about X, Y, or Z? You know, what do you do? That's one of the most interesting components of what we do when we interact with, with uh, family members yeah. or victims. Oh, man. And, and frankly, it's, it's because we, we have to it, – it, it can't be personal yeah. for, for, for the prosecutor. Right. It really can't be personal. It's based, as I said – and, and you'll get tired of hearing it, but it's based purely on whether we can prove a criminal case. Sure. If we can't prove a criminal case, it doesn't matter how strongly we feel about it. Right. If we're doing this, if we're doing this job uh, with with integrity, and if we're doing it the right way, then we then if we can't prove a case, it doesn't matter what we think. You know, there's a line from a movie, and uh, you know, it's a line from a movie, A Few Good Men. <laughs> Tom Cruise is, is his his character Daniel. Yeah. I think it was Daniel Caffey. Yep. Said it doesn't matter what I believe; it only matters what I can prove. That's right. And that and there no truer words have been spoken. You know, uh, one of the I referenced it as we began our conversation. We we met for the first time at something called a call in for truce, and it's right. an opportunity for people in the law enforcement community, your office, the district attorney's office, the police chief, the sheriff's office, and a number of us from the business community, and they're also members of clergy there, we get the opportunity, and and I underscore the word opportunity, to address some young people, most, well, really all young men, who are at the brink of a bad precipice. They, they are headed in a bad direction, and we try to talk them back. Yeah. And it's one of, one of my favorite things to be a part of. Because it doesn't really matter whether or not we have success. I think the effort is important. It is. And I see you there with them. And then recently here, as we record this a few days ago, we were together in an inner city community, kind of walking and meeting neighbors. That's an aspect of this that probably doesn't get a lot of attention uh, because it's something that you're doing away from the, you know, in courtroom job. Sure. What is your perspective on being involved in the community as U.S. attorney and then having your staff engage the people you serve? Yeah, for me, it's easy. It gets a lot of attention from the right people. And those are the people with whom we engage. Yeah. I mean, you saw the looks on the faces of those folks when we we knocked on doors. And half the time we didn't have to knock because they came out to visit. That's right. And, and, you know, when we got to talk to children, to parents and grandparents uh, and all ages in between. And, and, and it makes, I agree with you, the, the, the opportunity to be there makes a difference. I mean, there, th- just the fact that people recognize us yep. as leaders in the community, yep. they know who we are. Yep. And I think, and, and you've done it longer than I, but I think you, will, you would agree that uh, the first look is one of surprise, mm-hmm. and then they engage. Well, they're so happy to see that people actually care and are not paying lip service we're actually out there. Yeah. And I've told people who've never done it before, I said, you're going to be surprised at how warm and engaging the people are. Yeah. And they, and for me, the message is, look, you know, and I've, I had I had a really interesting conversation. <clears throat> I think I think at this point in the event, uh, was, I guess it was last week. Yeah. We were we we uh, was toward the end of the event where the where the group sort of spread out. A yeah. Bit. Yeah. And there was a there was a lady. Uh, that I met at her, her at her apartment, and and she was an you know she was an an, an older lady mm-hmm. who admitted to me that she is she's fighting her second round of cancer. Wow! And and it was and and we talked you know we didn't talk about the, necessarily the problems in the street, mm-hmm. which we know there are, yeah. which is simply why we were there, yep. right? Yep. We want them to know that we that we care about the communities yep. and we're and we're engaged. Yep. Um, but we talked about her. 
We talked about what was going on in her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more we talked, the more we recognized uh, that, you know, that we're all, we're all quite similar in a lot of ways. There it is. And, and it was interesting because the more we talked, we recognized one another. Yeah. She thought she'd recognize me from the media and then from the, you know, from the, from the, you know, from the job. Right. But as it turns out, she worked at a grocery store that I used to frequent when I was in college. How about that? Yeah. And so, yeah, and so we recognize each other from that as well. How about yeah, that? Yeah. So, but the point is it's, it's relationship building. Number one, I yeah. think, uh, it, it, it builds trust. And with that, what's so important about that, look, from a law enforcement perspective, because that's what I do. Yeah. It builds trust. Yep. And if, if that, if it gets that lady and then maybe her daughter mm-hmm. and her grandchildren yeah. who lived with her in that sure, apartment, sure. if it gets them one step closer to feeling confident or at least a little more confident mm-hmm. in what we do in the criminal justice system and through our process, if it gets them one step closer to realizing that, Hey, you know, he's, it's a, it's a real person. He's just trying to do a job. Right. And we're at, at our core trying to make her neighborhood a little safer, right. then that's a win. Dude, it's, uh, I'm, we've done 11 of them, and I enjoy them every time. Uh, it's, it, you know, people ask after the first one, what's the goal? Like, what are y'all trying to accomplish? We didn't try to accomplish it. We accomplished it. We met people. That's really it. And, and people think there's more, that there's not more to it than that. You just said it, meeting people, giving them a point of reference. I mean, we did it one time, and there were little kids who were afraid to come up to police officers because of what they had heard. Sure. And we had a snowball machine out there. Snowball, snowball machine won. Right. I don't care what they may have thought about the cops. Right. Kids weren't going to pass up a, chan- a chance right. to. And I think that's important because there has to be trust on both sides. So uh, one final question for you. If you had to sum up your goals for where you want this office to be and its impact on the public, uh, what would you say? Wow, that's a good question. So I started on February 22nd last year, and the message to my staff was this. One, I recognize that I'm inheriting a good situation, Mm -hmm. right? Number two, no matter how good our situation is, I want us to strive to be better tomorrow. Oh yeah. If tomorrow would become good, then let's, let's shoot for great the next That's day. It. And if we, if we hit great, let's achieve, let's try to achieve perfection. Right. And we all know that, that perfection is, is, is something that we'll chase, but never quite grasp. Yeah. But the point is let's, let's, let's chase. Yeah. And, and the question is, what is, what is success? What does that look like? Yeah. And so, you know, I mentioned to the staff for me, uh, success is not the four letter word stat. <laughs> it's not about numbers, uh, you know, and then look, and, and it's no secret in, in, in government, our, our success sometimes is measured by metrics, by mm-hmm. numbers. Mm-hmm. But for me, uh, and, and it's because of my experience with the state uh, at the state level, for me, success is when the mom in that neighborhood that we walked last week can let her seven-year-old daughter outside and ride her bicycle after school because she's not afraid that somebody is going to shoot a gun or sell some drugs. That's a success. If we go to work every day and if we do our jobs, the numbers will pile up, but we'll have a safer community. U S attorney, Brandon Freeman, you got a chance to sign the door, man. It's pretty neat. I'm excited to have, I'm excited to be one of the first five or 10 people up there. Well, you beat Hiller. And you and well, you didn't beat Chief Paul, but you'll beat Sid before uh, the, the chief took up an entire panel. So I don't know how you I don't know how you top that. <laughs> Man, look, keep up the great work, and thanks for coming in. Don't be a stranger. Yeah. Anytime, thank you, Clay. This is Jeff Laduff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly Laduff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consulting. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 225-313-9713 or visit us at our website, at OpenEyesSafetyTraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. 
Hi, this is Mayor Sharon Weston-Broom inviting you to listen to the We BR podcast, an initiative of my Women's Advancement Commission. Our show will air the first and third Wednesday of each month. We invite you to listen to our podcast by visiting www.podcast225.com. That's www.podcast225.com and by subscribing through the Apple Podcast app. That's We Be Our Podcast. Executone of Louisiana has been helping businesses in Baton Rouge save money on their telecommunications for over 40 years. Executone will help businesses upgrade their phones and intercom systems, save money, and never have to worry about local customer support. Doctors' offices, hospitals, schools, businesses, it doesn't matter. All kind have depended on the good people at Executone to upgrade technology and save money. I have a question for you. Do you like saving money? Sure, of course you do. Here's another one. Do you want to keep the most up-to-date phone and intercom technology while saving money. That's what it's all about. That's a no-brainer. Don't get sucked in by out-of-town companies who are not here if you need technical support. Executone has been here, and they believe in the value of customer service, baby. Don't take my word for it. Give them a call, 225-295-3500. It's 295-3500. Oh, look them up. ExecutoneLA.com. Executone of Louisiana. They still here, and they're going to continue to give you great service. This is the Clay Young Show. Lay. Really appreciate Brandon Freeman coming in and talking with us today. I'm always impressed with people who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and do extra extraordinary things. He certainly is in that number. So this week as we record this show, this drama with Jussie Smollett, the Empire actor, reached another bizarre level. Now we know what happened with him, at least as it was told to us by law enforcement in Chicago, and that was that the alleged assault that took place that was racially motivated, according to Smollett, was a hoax. The Chicago Police Department said not only was he the mastermind behind the hoax, he was also the mastermind behind the media tour he went on to exploit these issues, homophobia and racism, all for the purpose of enriching himself. And this thing took on a life of its own after the assault allegedly happened in January. Many people believed him and we're concerned about what this was saying about our country. He went on ABC uh, Good Morning America and spoke with Robin Roberts about it. Actually called ABC to secure an interview with Robin Roberts so that he could address this issue. And it turns out that it's, it was all made up. Now, I know that there are people out there who are still holding out hope that this happened. I'm not one of those people. I think the kid made it up. And for all of the media people who were so quick to run out, and I'm telling you, that's one of the things nowadays. Being first doesn't always make you right. Now, there is a copy of the check he wrote these guys. He says it was for personal training. They say it was a payoff. There's video of these guys buying the hats and and things that were used in the alleged assault. There is also a record of a phone call made to them just before the assault and then another one just after the assault. So the charges were dropped, and I look, I believe that this was because of his stature. This kind of thing does happen. It shouldn't happen, but it does happen. So now the federal, and, and as we record this, the president said that the feds are going to get involved and investigate this, so it's going to be even more of a dumpster fire. But come on, kid, this is what you do to get a raise on a TV show? So all of this to get a raise on a show that you are about to be axed off of, like axe as in chopped, not axe as in a mispronunciation of ask. They're kicking him off the show, okay? And that's just, it's, it's, this is crazy. 
It's like, dude, this makes it hard on people who actually do deal with discrimination of some sort in this country. And all the people who ran to his defense without the facts did so because of a a predisposition to believe that these things happen a lot in the country. And now he made a fool out of everybody and didn't even stand up there and apologize or at least look like he was humbled by it and didn't say anything. He just stood up there and owned it. I've been truthful ever since. Come on, bruh. We see you. Drop the bit. Now, it's going to chase this kid forever because in the era of social media, man, when they stick some talk about the scarlet letter. And Hawthorne's book, it was an A. And <laughs> 2019, it might be that Facebook or Twitter or Instagram emblem on you now that sticks with you wherever you go. And for the media, for God's sakes, what the hell is wrong with y'all? Are there no grown-ups anywhere in, in, in cable and, and national media now? If this kind of thing actually did happen to this kid, not only is it a shame, but the people who did this should be prosecuted and dealt with and made an example out of. But it didn't happen. I don't believe it did happen. Come on, kid. I think most people agree with me on this. So anyway, I just I'm shaking my head watching this like, are we being pranked? Is he pranking the country? Anyway, enough about that. I don't normally get into those kind of things, but I had to talk about that today, y'all. It's like, okay, come on, dude. There was a point in there where I was like, somebody better be with this kid. Put him on suicide watch because he looked like he was teetering. But money is a hell of a thing. So anyway, thanks again to Brandon Freeman for being on this week's episode of the show. Really, really enjoyed that. Next week, we're going to talk about museums and and what kids get from going to them. Talk about the Louisiana Arts and Science Museum and just kind of running a museum and all that goes into hosting children and what they get from it. And I'm looking forward to that conversation. And that's not all. Got something else in the works for you on episode 198 of The Clay Young Show. Thank you for being here with me. Have a great one wherever you are. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.